This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. Hello, welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2120, The Things We Have to Lose. And on the program, we have SVU showrunner and the co-writer of this episode, Warren Light. We conducted this interview remotely, of course, due to social distancing, but we still dig deep into this story and get a real sense of how it all came together. After that, returning guest star B. Cordelia tells us all about her moving portrayal of Lakira Baca. This is all happening right here on The Squad Room, which as always is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. I'm on the squad room with Warren Light talking about episode 20, The Things We Have to Lose, which was written by Warren and Julie Martin. Good to talk to you again, Warren. Nice to be back. <laughs> Speaking of being back, director Juan Campanella returned. Talk to me about that. Well, that was one of the great lucky breaks of the season. I had not worked with him before, but everybody on crew spoke incredibly highly of Juan. And we were trying to get him back for season 21. Mariska adores him. The crew likes him. And obviously, since directing for SVU, he went on to win an Academy Award. So that's always nice to have on set, too. <laughs> and it just timed out. He was living in Argentina, but he'd moved up to Florida recently. And we asked him to do an episode. He said, yes, we actually were going to bring him back for episode 23. So we'd booked him for two episodes this year. But of course, there will be no episode 23 this year. And uh, so he ends up directing what I've called our inadvertent season finale. That's right. And did you find anything unique about the way he worked? Was there anything different about him? Well, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know. I I thought, well, the guy has an Academy Award. Sometimes guys come in with an attitude or a little ego or a little uh, preen or something. But he was incredibly collaborative from the start. Look, I get to know these guys during the eight days of prep. We talk about the script on the first day. We have a little concept meeting. And then I tone the script with the director's. And then we cast together and we go over locations together. One of the things that struck me right away was this is a writer-director. He had nice ideas all the way through, good thoughts. A lot of directors come in and they start, oh, does this have to be a night scene or I won't be able to make this day? And he kept saying, you know, you could also add a scene here to where you do this. Why don't we see everybody? Why don't we add more? He was adding stuff. And I was nervous. I said, it's a lot to shoot. He goes, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. I can get it done. <laughs> and so there was a, an incredible openness and energy to him and a collaborative quality. And every day in prep, the script got better. I do a lot of rewriting in prep because I'm working with the director. The locations come in. We can't make this location work. So you're always working on the script the last two weeks before shooting begins. And in this case, the prep, I just felt, wow, this was a good script. Julie and I were both happy with the script going in. The other thing that struck me was he sat down and we always give the guys when they come in, the director comes in, we give them a lot of episodes to look at so they get a feel for the show, what we're doing this year visually, what we're doing, what the actors can do. He watched everything and he came in every day more excited about what he'd seen and he would say, hey, you had a scene here in this episode that did this. Why don't we do this? So it was, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best collaborations I've had with a director. So there's a reason he got his Academy Award. I think so. I, uh, <laughs> it was really, you know, sometimes it's funny because sometimes guys come in and, and strut and uh, he just got to work. 
And there was a lot of bounce in the room. And that carried over to set. There was a lot of life on set when he was directing, a lot of bounce on set. Um, we didn't know it would be the last episode of the season when he began shooting, but I was about two or three days into his shoot. I was getting very nervous about coronavirus, and I wondered, uh, is this going to be the last one? And then I thought, if it is, this is a pretty good one to go out. Yeah, and I, I thought that was pretty amazing and something I wanted to talk about. Just basically the idea that you and Julie had to bring everyone back. What was the thinking behind that? And was any of it going to continue on during this season? Like, were you going to revisit some of the things that happened in this episode? Uh, Julie and I thought, oh, Juan Campanella is coming in, so we can aim high here. We can, we can put together an episode that might be daunting for others to shoot. It's daunting when you have three intersecting storylines and recurring characters and different worlds. So it's a lot to ask of a director coming in for his first one of the season. But we thought, this guy should be able to do it. But the last four episodes had their own little mini arc. And we were looking for some hint of resolution to some stories. There's obviously no good resolution yet to the Ian McShane storyline. He is, as the episode ends, either feigning illness or in a bad way, and the trial is once again postponed. And we started the season with that story, and I wanted to check in on it. And the reality is, you know, a lot of times in Law & Order, the guy gets arrested on Thursday and it goes to trial on Friday. And I've always bumped on that because especially when it's a wealthy defendant, it can be a year or two years before it goes to trial. So I kind of wanted to portray the reality of how evil wealthy people can manipulate the system to delay and to dishearten. So that was one thing we wanted to check in on. And then episode five, Midnight Manhattan, had characters that stayed with us. Lakira's character and that horrible attorney and also poor Andre and his mom. So, you know, those stories don't go away. A domestic violence story usually doesn't end well. And in episode five, we sent him to jail, but it was for a misdemeanor because that's how that deal was cut. He'd be out in six months. He's out. He's going to go right back to that apartment. So we just wanted to check in. You know, we were at that point, I guess, in our minds, five-sixths of the way through the season. You're just hitting the home stretch. We wanted to check in on some of the cases that had resonated more for us. So in a way that the inability, I guess, to get Ian McShane back, because he's high profile and not local, becomes part of your story. Yes. I mean, in my mind, someday there's a trial. There's a whole episode of his trial. Someday, maybe. But for now, we just thought we're allowed to use some footage of him that had been in the prior episode. And it's the tease. It's what these guys do. They don't make themselves available. Right. So in the beginning of the season, and obviously you visited throughout and really hear you, why did you make Judge Barth go to the dark side? It almost reminds me of like a Star Wars, Darth Vader kind of thing. Like she's just fully dark. Well, while I was away from the show, they had a storyline about she'd been having an affair and her husband found out and she went undercover. I thought, well, that, you know, we don't usually give judges storylines, but they'd given her one. I thought, what are the repercussions of that when the husband finds out about the affair? Probably a divorce, probably alimony, probably money problems. We talked to a lot, not a lot, but I've talked to a few judges. You know, they don't make big money in the greater scheme of things. And so I thought she could have college age kids. I thought she might need money. I needed somebody to turn in that initial episode. In real life, a number of very high profile advocates ended up I think, sullying their reputations by supporting wealthy predators. And so I thought it, it's interesting how people at that level of society are somehow able to get people to turn and work for them. And Judge Barth was someone I liked, Jenna, as an actress a lot and as a person. I knew 
she could step up to do it. So I thought, well, this is someone we know, someone we wouldn't think would do it. And how disturbing is it when people like that go over to the dark side? Yeah, it's very upsetting. And I think that scene with Liv, you could see how disappointed she is. I have to give props here. That scene with Liv, was uh, we did the read-through of the script maybe on day six of prep, two days before shooting. And Mariska came up to me and said, I wish I had a moment with Judge Barth. Ooh, okay. Uh, and she was right. And Julie and I ran to our office and wrote it quickly. And I think it becomes a nice, almost center point of the episode. Yes. Um, so that's the thing about, for me, is during prep, especially because I had a director like Juan, and I could go to him and say, you know, Mariska wants a beat there. It's going to add. He goes, don't worry about it. I'll get it. When it's an open prep process, good things happen. And if you're open to ideas, not just from Mariska, I'm open to ideas from anybody. A lot of times, my prop guy, Mike Satcher, will have a great note, or um, the set dresser, Deborah Moses, will have a great note. You never know where a good note's going to come from, so you just keep your ears open. You can always say no. So talk to me about Lakira. She comes back, and I guess where we left her in uh, Midnight in Manhattan, she seemed okay with the decision she had made, and she could justify it. And now she's having second thoughts about what she did and feeling some guilt. And obviously, that idea is a very complicated one. Yeah, you know, I talked to B. Cordelia, the actress who plays Lakira, a lot because I haven't written a lot of trans characters, and I wanted to get it right. And she said, I don't think my character was okay with the way things ended in episode five, I think she thought under the circumstances, it was the best she could do. Got it. Lakira didn't believe that anyone would look at her and look at David. You know, I get confused because it's Paul. Is it? It's Ben. He said that. He said, why did Warren make my name so close to my name? <laughs> we, we have, ben Davies. Paul Davies, Ben Davis, or is it right, Ben is it, Davis, Paul Davies? <laughs> well, the lawyer. We'll just call him the lawyer because, you know, <laughs> we have the name it cleared and we have to clear every name for legal. And once the name clears, we're not changing it. And then he got cast and it was like, now I'm totally confused because there's Davis, <laughs> Davis, Paul, Ben. But the lawyer, and he's a good, really good guy, by the way, and a, a, yes. a, an excellent actor. We actually brought him back. This is the third time this year. But I think Lakira's character thought they're going to take one look at him, one look at me in court. No one's going to believe a word I say. He's got all the money in the world. He raped me if I can get a coat out of it and some money and walk away. It's not a win, but it'll spare me humiliation and it'll spare me having to go through this again. So that's where she was at the end of episode five. And maybe she fronted being happy with her decision on the pier when she was talking to Kat. And now, because of that decision, this guy's still out there and another victim who's a friend of hers dies. And so the uh, remorse and regret and self-loathing and anger is intense at that point. And I think you see that at the end of an act. And then when I talked to her about the script, we decided, initially we repeated that beat at the end of the episode when she goes to the memorial for Dakota. We had her still filled with just kind of overflowing with uh, anger at herself. And I talked to her as an actress, she wanted to do something different there. And I thought, well, we had talked about her mom. I ain't got about her mom's not being there for her. And I thought, you know, it's a pretty dark episode and it's a pretty dark world the show takes place. And every once in a while, a moment's grace is nice. And I thought having the mom there might give just a, a little bit of a sense of maybe things can change a little for Lakira. Maybe. Maybe she's hit bottom, but is getting up off the floor by the end of the episode. And that came from talking to E about it. Yeah, so you wanted to have some kind of moment at the end where maybe she feels less guilt, right? About what, what had happened. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel it's complicated to 
deal with that, those issues of guilt over what you may have done and the choices they make? Because you don't revisit characters a lot. Is that different to write for you? I like writing to that and I miss writing for it. A lot of the writing I've done in my life before I became a law and order stalwart, uh, (laughs) you know, my play Sideman was an entire memory play about looking back at your life, your mother's life, your father's life, your mother's and father's life before you were born, all the choices made and not made. And I love writing to that. And the law and order conceit is when the episode ends, it ends. And I've taken a few liberties this year to revisit. And I think it's gone over okay. I like to talk about loss and choices not made and roads not taken. I think that's a therapist once said to me, that's where the gold is. So I was happy to get these beats in. Uh, you know, and to me, another one of those, Finn does everything he can to help out Andre. He gives him a phone. He meets the guy, uh, Andre's dad, Leon, the minute he gets off the bus. And it goes horribly awry. And close to the end of the episode, Finn gets hit with a subpoena. He's being sued for wrongful death. You can do everything at, to the best of your ability with your heart in the right place and not only can it go wrong, but you can then get blamed and sued. And uh, that's also part of, I think, what cops go through. That mantra a lot of cops have, no good deed. And certainly in, in that case, that's the case. I wanted to get into Ice's storyline and basically the connection he had with Andre, which I think in my talks with Brianna around Midnight in Manhattan, there was definitely something going on, right, with the two of them. So do you then revisit it because... You notice that? Is it, or is, how does it all come together? You obviously saw the chemistry between him and the kid. I remember that episode, we'd had a long discussion about the location of where he takes the kid. For some reason, there was a huge delay in getting a location. We couldn't find it. The little scene with, where he talks to Andre by the car. Yeah, I love that scene. So there was a, a huge problem finding a location for it because of where we were already shooting and it was late and you can't shoot too late with a kid, which is a good law. The kids, by the way, the, the term you use is the kid pumpkins at 10. You have to stop shooting the kid <laughs> at night. So they say he pumpkins. So that's on the call sheet. You know, attention, Andre pumpkins at 10. So Andre was going to pumpkin. So they, they, had, they were running out of time and they stole the scene where they stole it. And I saw the dailies the next day because I was worried and I, and I saw something. There was clearly some father-son stuff or some chemistry, something very sweet between Ice and Andre or between Finn and Andre. And we don't see that side of Finn that often. No. Uh, and I, I thought, oh, that's organic. You know, ice is always organic. There's no pretense. And something was clicking there. And I, I just filed it away. Um, there was a story, I guess, last season while I was away, but I thought it was a strong one where we learned that ice had seen his mother shot. And we revisited that a little bit this year when he was doing the, uh, he had like a little therapy session to practice. Yes. Yeah. So I thought, well, this is new information. We had never established that Finn's mother was killed in front of him when he was a child until season 20. But now that we know that, let me write to that. And so here he is, in order to save Andre, he has to kill Andre's dad while Andre is being held by his dad. And he has that line, uh, a child should never have to see that. And he's talking about Andre and he's talking about himself. And I, yeah. I, I like that beat. Yeah, and actually, <laughs> long way of saying, yeah, something was going on between Boom <laughs> and Andre from the first dailies in episode five. So I've wanted to to write more to that. Were you surprised to see Ice's kind of tender side or did you know that he has it in him? Well, you know, Ice is funny. Sometimes we'll be on set. He has this thing where he'll maybe he'll go after uh, a perp or a victim a little hard. 
and you give him a note and he goes, okay, you want sensitive ice. I got it. And he'll go and do sensitive ice as he calls it. And he does it well, but this was different. It was. You know, we haven't seen him too often with a kid. And maybe the way I read that scene, Finn sees a little of himself as a boy in young Andre. And maybe he sees a little of his child. You know, there are traumatic moments in all of our lives, but as a kid that bend you, that reshape your destiny. And I think when Finn is looking at Andre, he's seeing himself at a moment when his life changed forever. When something works, I'm loath to ask the actors what's going on or why did it work. I don't want them to get self-conscious about it. I'm just glad it right. Yeah, you don't want them overthinking that. No, I don't want them to think about it at all. (laughs) (laughs) And moving into Kelly and Ivy and Amanda, that storyline, and just obviously the Bucci family. Obviously, Rollins is still feeling this connection and responsibility. And then there was a theme, I think, of single mothers with Liv and Rollins and Donna. And what were you getting at with all that? Well, uh, look, we're, as we're all finding out in isolation, parenting is not easy. And if you're, do, you know, and if you're a single mom with a job, I have a lot of single mother friends that what they manage to do every day is heroic, I think. Yeah. And so I'm aware that by circumstance, we have two single mothers in our squad room who are heroes both at work and I guess uh, I would say heroes at home. But it's a lot of pressure. And here is Rollins about to go home at the end of a shift and this train wreck of a mother comes in. I think she's a great actress. And I I also, that was a character I wanted to bring back because I liked her performance so much. And I liked Ivy so much. But this train wreck comes in at midnight and Rollins nods to Kat, you go have fun, I'll take this. And I just think that she has empathy uh, for Ivy. There's that nice little scene in family court where Rollins tells the judge, this is what Ivy's gone through. And Ivy, yeah, I, one of, what I wanted in that scene when I toned it, and I think what happened, and I was really happy about it, was it's the first time Ivy hears her story told out loud and feels it. Up until yeah. then, she's just been a human doing. She's just been acting out. She's acting out when she goes to the Getz house. She gets raped by Getz. She acts out, pretends she's okay with it, you know, pimps herself, gets pimped out and everything's fine, gets angry at her dad, lashes out at her mom, lashes out at her dad, lashes out at the cops, doesn't even get retribution because her dad's in jail and Getz kills himself. And I wondered what happens to a person like that. What closure do the victims have? And I wondered about that. And there is no closure for a lot of those victims. And some of them have to be on a downward spiral. And I thought Ivy would certainly be on one. And I think Rollins, I don't know if the wires have gotten crossed. She's a little bit cathected to Detective Bucci. She's a little bit, again, sees young Rollins a little bit in Ivy, maybe, wild Rollins rebelling. Uh, And she takes this case on. What we wanted, and I think what we got, was everyone in the episode takes a case on. Finn takes on Andre. Rollins takes on Ivy. Kat takes on Lakira. Carisi and Benson takes on all of them, obviously, and Benson and Carisi take on Sir Toby Moore. But for Rollins, I think she identifies, she's close to the dad. She knows the mom is useless. She knows the girl is spiraling out of control. And I think everyone in this episode ignores their needs to help somebody else, everyone in our squad. And that's what Rollins is doing there. And then Liv says, because you're the only one that could save her. What does that remark mean? I love writing scenes in which Liv asks somebody, why are you getting so involved? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like she should talk, right? But so right. there's an element of, um, can't somebody else do this? Does it have to be you? And she's like saying, Rollins, take care of yourself. Stop being a, don't be a martyr here. Go home to your daughter. This isn't on you. And Rollins thinks if it's not on me, this girl's going to go down. Right. And so that's that. I just remembered 
the original impulse for this episode had nothing to do with where the episode ended up. We were originally going to do an episode about the cost of coming forward, all those people who testified, what was the cost of doing that? There'd been a lot of profiles of people and it took an enormous toll on these people. And we wanted to do an episode about that. And we were going to do all new characters. And then I thought, well, why don't we visit some of the characters we've seen in addition? And then we lost all of the all new characters and went to this story because each of our main characters had a connection to one of these victims. What's the cost of coming forward in domestic violence? What's the cost of coming forward when you're a trans woman on the street assaulted by a wealthy man? What's the cost of coming forward when you're going up against Toby Moore? What's the cost of coming forward when you're going up against a Getz? And so the episode ended up, it was going to be all new characters, and then it was going to be half new characters, half old characters, and then it was it became this. And I think maybe it was a good turn. And talk to me about Pilar and Amelia and just what they go through and where we leave them at the end of the episode. Pilar and Amelia, again, Amelia, I thought, had a nice scene. She was a parks department worker. She just had a one with Olivia in the park. I liked what happened in that scene. I thought that's an interesting character I could see more of. And Pilar obviously started the season off. Two really good actresses. That, that always helps. One of the things that we haven't written about a lot or depicted a lot is when you go up against these people, your life is an open book. And I think Pilar has that great scene. She's prepping for the trial. And she basically says, he committed the crime. Why am I the one on trial? And then she yeah. sits at the defense table on the way out, which was a nice beat. You know, we see it over and over again, not just the big name cases, but every time someone is the victim of a sexual assault, and cops came in and talked to us about this. There's an assault the night they're assaulted. Then the rape kit itself is very invasive. And then the questioning process is very invasive. The cops have to vet everything because they know what's coming. The DA vets everything because they know what's coming. And then oftentimes the trial or the fear of trial is in a sense another assault. And it's one of the worst things. You know, we, This is the basic difference between sex crimes and other crimes. If you get your TV stolen or somebody breaks into your car, nobody says, what were you wearing when your car got broken into? Are you sure you didn't want your TV stolen? Did you start out saying it's okay to steal my TV and then stop? Were you drunk? Nobody asks that of other crime victims, but victims of sexual assault are put under enormous scrutiny. And it's devastating to them emotionally and physically and spiritually. And we wanted to talk about that. And Pilar, in her first scene when she walks, when you see her waiting to meet Toby Moore in the season premiere and you see her walking into Toby's office, she has no idea, again, that her life's about to change forever. She's fresh, she's young, she believes this is a chance, and her life will never be the same by the time she leaves his office in that first episode. And here it is, eight months later, nine months later, and she's still under enormous pressure. There, People are posing as reporters and interviewing her family and her friends in Venezuela. They're digging up everything they can possibly find about her. And she's a sweet kid in over her head who didn't see it coming and doesn't have a support group. She's a long way from home. And, you know, that's oftentimes predators. Those are the people they pick. You go after the most vulnerable or you go after people who are a little unstable or people who maybe have had a troubled past. They have a sixth sense for who to prey upon. And you see that, you know, uh, Amelia was just a kid. She was babysitting Toby's grandchildren. And she didn't even remember that she told her mom about it at the time. And you see the effect it has. One of the things we wanted to show is the effect it has on your relationship. And you see Amelia's partner is doing the best she can, but really is at the end of her rope too. 
So these were things we wanted to talk about. And usually, since our episodes end at an arrest or a conviction and our focus tends to be on that process, the trauma the victims go through, the continue to go through, we show it, but we don't get to um, make it a main storyline. And in this episode, we did. And coming back to our principles, you have Benson teaming up with Carisi, right? Yeah. And then there's a development in the courtroom. I want to talk about pairing them and then kind of get into, you know, Carisi's meltdown, I guess, at the end there. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. That was part of our end of season arc. The Benson Carisi episode was going to go through a lot of turmoil. And we were beginning to set it up in this episode. You see Carisi under pressure, getting a little, uh, he just can't stand it. He's so, at this point, he's so protective of Amelia and Pilar. He's so strung out and tired and worn down. And uh, interestingly, you know, Hadid does not show up in this episode. No. They're letting Carisi sink or swim on this one because this, you know, if it doesn't go well, it won't be anybody's fault but Carisi. So he's feeling that pressure. And Olivia's trying to buck him up as best she can. And he can't hold it together. He loses it. And where we were headed were some interesting episodes where there's been this process. Olivia has had to let go of Carisi. She supervised Carisi. She brought him in. She taught him everything she knows about sex crimes. And now he's prosecuting them. And their relationship has got to change. She's no longer his boss, but she's occasionally feels betrayed when he doesn't do what she wants him to do. And we were going to start writing a bit more to that. So in this episode, I think we saw her maternal protective side trying to, you know, she says, well, do you need Amelia? Is it that important? Which is unusual for her to suggest something like that. But she's trying to take the pressure off of Carisi. But they're in two different worlds now. And their relationship, I mean, there's a strong bond there. But inevitably, when you go from being the player to the coach, which is another kind of transition, as Olivia did, there's some stress. And then when Carisi switches teams, in a sense, there's also going to be some tension. So we were beginning an arc that maybe we'll pursue in season 22. Was there an indication there at the end that maybe Sonny is not cut out for this kind of work? No, I just think it's a, a learning curve. Okay. I actually think he's proven himself all year long. You know, in general, prosecutors, ADAs do not get as emotionally involved. Right. We talked a lot about how the first responder, it might be the EMS person, might be the detective, they bond with the victim. They see the victim at the worst night of their life and they bond. That's their victim. A lot of cops have told me that's my victim. And then, you know, you, as you move farther, the captain is a little farther away usually, although not so much with Olivia. And then you get to the ADA and you get to the judge. As you move down the legal process, these people have had less time with the victim and see the victim in a less stressed place. So they're less connected to the victims. But because Carisi's been a cop, he still carries that understanding, that empathy. And I won't call it an Achilles heel, but that's what makes him different from other DAs. The DAs are analytical. They can be emotional, but they're not as, in general, they don't get as emotionally involved. They're just farther down the legal process chain. And also the nature of who becomes a lawyer, it tends to go to analytical people. They're on the structural side, generally more than the empathic side of the curve. I guess we have to talk about the scene with Carisi and Rollins where she comes to meet him, which is, I thought, beautifully acted and written and also has a certain look to it, which I thought was very interesting. It felt like Mad Men or something to me. That's so Juan. Just, that look is Juan. I said, look, this is the end of the day, remains of the day, the end of the day. This is, 
And he comes in with those Venetian blind shadows. It's noirish. It's madmanish. Yeah. It, yeah. That's that, one of the things to look at in this episode, aside from all this character stuff I tend to focus on, just the look of every scene. He found different looks for every world. And Norberto Barba, our producing director, and Juan, they were just as collaborative. He just came in and they talked and talked a lot about contrast. And this scene that we're talking about, it's kind of subdued. It's a day is done kind of scene. It's closure, it's ending. We've seen Carisi sometimes make himself emotionally available to Rollins only to be shut down. And here's Rollins coming in, realizing Carisi's gone through hell, offering him uh, just a break. And he can't take it. Why? Well, officially, I think he says, you know, I've got paperwork to do. I've got this. He's got a lot of cases to do. I wonder if he's protecting himself a little there. If he's, I mean, he. how many writers do I know who have not gone out on a social thing because they have, they're on a deadline? And they're on a deadline, but also part of them is a little antisocial, reluctant, scared. I think something's going on. I don't think he's kind of aware of it. Could be a lot of explanations. There's obviously a connection between the two of them, but I think is more aware of if we take another step, it could damage this friendship. And I, I think it's something interesting to write about, but we don't know nearly as much about Carisi's life as we do about Rollins. What's his social life? Well, does he date? Is he monastic in some ways? Is he saving himself? It's kind of interesting character, but there's the invitation to go for a drink or three. and. He decides to stay at work. Again, what choices you make. Is that a good choice or bad choice? But it's one more choice made at the end of the episode, toward the end of the episode. And Rollins makes a choice to be vulnerable with him and ask him out, essentially. I mean, yeah, are we reading that as coming from her as definitely a moment where the things might get romantic? Uh, you know, I, I think that sexuality and intimacy are not always the same. I think she wants intimacy, and it doesn't have to mean romance. And sometimes right. I'm sure with a character like Rollins, that has been blurred her whole life. And I think this is something they go back and forth on. You know, there's the sort of push me, pull you relationships that people have, where if you're pursuing me, I'll move away. And then if you stop pursuing me, I'll start pursuing you and you'll move away. And it feels like that may be a little bit of what's going on there. My favorite thing in that scene is that she calls him Dominic. Yeah, I noticed that. It's a nice touch. It's personal. Yeah. Can you talk to me about the last scene then? The last scene, this is tricky. We did not want this episode to be the season end. We had we had plans. We all had plans. <laughs> a month ago, everybody had plans, but life changed enormously in the last six weeks. And then at some point we thought, oh gosh, this is going to be the season finale. And then we thought, that's good because it actually does a lot of things a season finale should do. But when we got to the cut, we realized the last beat of Olivia was in the courtroom with Parisi, which mm -hmm. was a, a fine last beat. And then we've actually recut it. So after that beat, we now go to Lakira and the Dakota Memorial. We move that down in the act, just again for that sense of end of day. Uh, and then we go to the scene with Ron. So here it is, the season finale. And the last scene with Olivia is not her scene. It's really Carisi's courtroom scene. And she's there for Carisi, but she's not the focus of the scene. And it's two scenes away from the end. And by this point, we've been shut down. And we wanted to just go back to her. And so we found a way to do that. Um, it's improvised. If I could have gone back and shot one more scene, I would have, but we couldn't. So we found some cuts that we hadn't used, and we made some changes to them. Switched, it's, it's Olivia in Times Square. 
as she was at the beginning of the episode, sort of bookending it. And we switched it from day to night. We switched the angle and the profile. And it just let us close the season on her looking at Toby Moore once again getting away with it. And that's how historic season 21 ends. All right. Well, Warren Light, I want to thank you for taking the time and breaking down this incredible episode with me. Well, it's good you. to talk again. One other thing I wanted to say, Anthony, I wanted to thank you for a great season of podcasts. I think it's something the fans have enjoyed. I also wanted to thank our fans. The support for season 21 has really been something we all felt and were aware of. We're grateful to all of our fans, and I'm grateful to my cast and crew for all the work they've done. I think we were having a terrific year. I'm sorry I got cut short. We send our condolences to Josh's family. Our crew love Josh very much, and our thoughts are with his family and his friends. But I also wish everybody the best under these difficult times. Thanks, Anthony. All right. Thanks, Warren. Thank you. B. Cordelia's portrayal of Lakira at Midnight in Manhattan was a standout in a season filled with many great guest performances. We're lucky to grab a moment with B to discuss Lakira's journey and the things we have to lose. I'm on the squad room on location with B. Cordelia. We're happy to have you. I'm happy to be here. I wanted to go back to Midnight in Manhattan, yeah. which is your first appearance, mm-hmm. and just talk a little bit about that episode. It definitely made an impact, and uh, I just want to get your thoughts when you found out you are coming back. And Well, with the way that Midnight in Manhattan ended, I was always hopeful that she would come back. I think the choice to make her have this prior relationship with Kat already makes her kind of more interesting and dynamic within the show. And I was very excited when they indeed confirmed that she'd be coming back. Yeah, I love that you and Kat have that relationship and we'll talk about it a little bit later. At the end of At Midnight in Manhattan, you made a decision that maybe some people had different takes on like kind of what is justice and what's justice for Lakira. So I was very much live tweeting along when that episode aired and I was really surprised by how controversial her decision was. And I was responding to people on Twitter and such. Like a lot of people were saying that it is her fault now or that like if any further violence happens it is her fault because she chose not to prosecute him at the time and i really went to bat for her defending her i'm like well one it was my job to inhabit her and to be her so i know why she's making this decision and also like more broadly we really need to be able to show up for survivors at every step of the way And a lot of survivors choose not to prosecute their rapists, their assaulters, their whomever, because that process can be really, really emotionally triggering and difficult. And also because a lot of the times you don't get justice even when you bring everything out in the open. The amount of dignity and evidence that you can bring forward and still not see anything happen. Like... It made absolute sense to me that Lakira, who in episode five was in a situation of homelessness and wanting to take a sum of money to be able to have a little bit more ability to move through the world when not much else seemingly was going to change if she did prosecute him. So 
talking about some of, you know, negative views towards sex workers and trans community and you inhabiting that in this character. I mean, what are your thoughts on a bigger scale when you're playing a part like that? So when I first got the audition for Lakira in my inbox, I had a couple red flags immediately go up that it's like, okay, we're getting a trans sex worker who is assaulted. Like on the face of it, that makes me nervous, especially as a writer myself too. And I'm always kind of interrogating what are all of the tropes that we're used to seeing trans women in and how can I subvert them at every step of the way? And to have something that was lining itself up with a couple of tropes from the beginning made me nervous. And then I read the episode and I was really taken aback and really fell in love with her because they had given her this really specific, beautiful sense of resilience and the way that she really tries to push the pain away and will always make a decision and figure out how to keep moving forward despite really impossible circumstances. And that's what really made me love her and made me go, okay, cool. Because sex work is reality, assault is reality, all this violence against the trans community, all of that is very real. And if you're going to tell that story, you have to do it well. And that's what made me really excited when I read that episode and made me comfortable going in for that audition was that I knew that she had this really full life and that there was this sense of complexity that I don't often see. Yeah, because there's a lot of talk about representation and what do you think just on a broader scale on TV and stuff? I'm guessing you see those tropes often, right? You see, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is why I write especially because right. I want to be able to put out narratives that feel more reflective of my experience or experiences of friends or things that are just like so far outside what we've imagined possible for trans people. Like I want to see more trans women as romantic leads, which is I just actually last night watched the pilot of Dispatches from Elsewhere, this new Jason Siegel show on AMC. And Eve Lindley plays this romantic lead on it. And they never talk about the fact that she's trans and she's just like casually trans and also a romantic lead, which is awesome. And there's also shows like Pose, which are very centered on trans women and talking about the fact that they're trans women and talking about trans-related topics and doing so with a lot of heart and complexity, which is really exciting. So there are a lot of shows that are finding new ways of doing some of these things, but they're very recent and they're definitely still the minority. So coming back for this episode, 2120, The Things We Have to Lose, Juan Campanella's directing and Warren and Julie wrote, you're being harder on yourself, right? Lakira is well, yeah. beating herself up a little bit. So I was excited when I saw this episode because I was thinking about the negative reactions Lakira received at the end of the last episode. And it is kind of like the thing that they willed into being almost. The people who are like, well, if anyone gets hurt now, it's her fault. And now that's what happens. And she really blames herself. And sort of understandably, but also like as her, I have to understand that. But then as B elsewhere, <laughs> I know that that's not true and that the only person who is at fault in the case of a rape is the rapist. And also she's dealing with all this survivor's guilt in a really complex way that allows us to think about just like what it means to be a survivor more long term. And like the fact that she made this choice at the end of the last episode to preserve 
herself and to try to find a more stable situation of housing to have a little bit more money and to not go through an incredibly emotionally traumatic experience in pursuing justice with him and having to sit across from him in court. And now he's raped someone else and that person ends up dying. And what does that mean for her and for that choice that she made? And how does she live with that? How does she try to pursue justice against him now? How does she try to honor Dakota after she's died? Yeah. What, what are you doing with all that? I mean, that's, that's a lot of... <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that I was really happy about working with Warren, again, was that I emailed him after I read an earlier draft of the script and basically collaborated with him on giving the ending of this episode that we now have of having an end with this vigil for Dakota and having also this moment of reconciliation between Lakira and her mom, just to give more of a sense of hope and progress. Because again, it's unfortunately really real that rates of violence that happen against trans women, especially Black trans women, trans women of color. And to be able to honor that the reality of the story while also not just allowing the trauma and the grief of that to overtake everything else, yeah. but to still try to find a way of like, what does it look like when community still shows right. up in the aftermath? What does it look like when parents start to support their trans children? What does it look like to see those stories start to still roll forward? V. Cordelia, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally got to talk. I yeah, know it took us a while. Me. And this great performance. Thank you. That's a wrap for the Squad Room. Please subscribe to Squad Room wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss a thing. What an incredible season this has been. We want to thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back with a few bonus episodes to hold you over until next season. We want to keep hearing from you in the meantime. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf N. The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Joe Tisdall. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto. And we want to extend a big thank you to Victoria Pollock for all of her help this season. The Squad Room, as always, is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. And we'll see you soon. Bye.